temple, what comes to your mind? You know, for many of us, we might think about some temple on the other side of the world. Or what we might also think about are those temples of old, most of which are now just ruins and we might interact with them by going to a museum and, and studying them or, or about reading about them in history books. So a temple, for many of us, that's what we oftentimes think about. But the temple in the Bible was so much more. And for the next few weeks, I want us to, to continue to look at this idea about what a temple is and how we connect with, uh, with, with the temple and what it does for us. See, a temple is really, at least when you look at what it actually does, a temple is a place where people can go and connect with their God. It's a place, another way of putting it is, a place where heaven and earth can meet. You know, that's God's space and our space. They come together in the place of a temple. And the uh, really, for the next few weeks, I want us to kind of start off with this, this verse right here. It's going to be the, this temple series theme verse. It comes to us from 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. In 1 Kings 8, 27, this is when Solomon is dedicating his temple to God. This is what he says. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. Now, many times when we think of a temple, we think of those physical structures. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but what I'm saying is, if that's what we start off with, then we're already kind of on a, a weird foot to begin with. Because notice this middle part of this verse right here. He says, the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. You know, there's several passages that talk about kind of all of creation being the dwelling place of God, you know, where he dwells, where he inhabits. You know, God is so much bigger than just one little little building. We can't just, you know, box him in in a temple. That's not how the God of the Bible works. So what we're going to do with this first lesson is kind of see about how we connect with God specifically. We're not going to be dealing with the physical structure of a temple like hardly at all today. But we're going to be dealing with the fact that all of creation uh, was made for God to be able to inhabit. Now, you know, th this phrase right here, the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. And we find this whenever we start looking at the first few pages of the Bible. So let's see what this story of the Bible is telling us about how we as humans can connect to our God. 
In Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, which, by the way, for the first uh, little bit of this sermon, and, and uh, maybe even all of it, we're going to be looking at passages that are pretty familiar to us. We're most certainly going to start off with passages that are familiar to us, and we're going to see them in maybe a little bit new light, uh, and think about them in ways that we haven't thought about them before. So Genesis chapter 2, 8 and 9, this is what we read about. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So now I want us to kind of pick apart these verses. And I want us to notice something about what really is being described. For starters, let's, let's notice this right here. When you look at verse 8, you find out about this land of Eden. You know, Eden apparently uh, was, was some type of an area in which it was, you know, really good. I mean, the way that, that Genesis describes Eden is it's wonderful. In fact, the way that, that uh, the Bible is going to continue to refer back to Eden is about this beautiful thing, like the, the best images that you can imagine. That's kind of going to be connected with Eden uh, throughout the rest of the, the Bible. So you've got this area that is Eden, which by the way, the word Eden, it means delight. It means things that are pleasant. So it means delight. So then this land of delight, we have something that God made. Notice this, the Lord God had planted a garden now, see, you know, a lot of times we just call it the Garden of Eden, and maybe we kind of connect that. Maybe we even throw those terms back and forth or around and just act like they're interchangeable, that the Garden and Eden, they're the same place. They're actually not, though. What we find out is that the Garden was placed in Eden. So, you know, it's kind of a smaller area, and we just kind of attribute that Eden would be this, this beautiful place and everything is just wonderful. But there is something special about this Garden that God planted. And we also find out, you know, right here that this is where he places man. There's something big that's going to be taking place right here. Because as we continue to, to kind of see what happens is the Lord God has this wonderful relationship with mankind. He's able to walk and to talk with them. And right here we see that he does that in this garden that is in the land of Eden. So big circle, you got Eden. Smaller circle, you have this garden that is in the land of Eden. Now, gardens... For throughout ancient times, and you know, even today, let's face it, are really thought of as this, this wonderful place. You know, it's just kind of a, a place where we can sort of get away and just kind of enjoy those things. At least for those of us who like gardens, let's face it, not everybody is exactly like that. But what we see with the garden, as you trace it throughout the pages of the Bible, is you see it's connected to this other word. In fact, in the Greek, whenever they were translating this garden, they connected it with words that are related to paradise. So whenever we think about paradise, you know, it makes sense. We, we oftentimes, you know, maybe even if you think about the word paradise, you might think of a garden-like atmosphere in which it is paradise. Everything is going great. That's what we see that God is making. Eden, the garden, but then there's something in the middle of this garden. Notice verse 9. It says that in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So once again, we see... The big space is Eden. Within this big space of Eden, there is a garden. Within this garden, in the middle of the garden, there is this tree of life. There's this choice that they have in which they can go to life. You know, mankind was given this choice to be able to, to cling to life and to be able to live. 
uh, apparently with God forever. Now, this other tree is also talked about about being in the middle of the garden. And that, that's kind of interesting because I don't know how much we really think about that and, and talk about that. But, you know, quite likely, um, I'm going to maybe fast forward just a little bit here. Quite likely, when they were eating from that tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, they could see the tree of life. I mean, it seems like if both of them are in the, in the middle of the garden, you have these two options. You have the option that can lead to life, and you have this other option uh, that we find out it can lead to death. You know, this knowledge of good uh, and evil. Those are the ways that God laid out for them, even in this Garden of Eden. So, we have in this land of delight, there is a paradise. Within this paradise, there is life. This is the way God set it up. And I want you to kind of remember this layout, because this layout is going to show up um, in future uh, kind of weeks as we look at what a temple is about and even the structure of a temple we'll go back to the same type of structure about the Eden the garden and then this tree of life itself but there's still more about this story that I want us to together and I want us to see what God does with all of these things here so in verse 10, this is another image that we need to, to kind of uh, group in. And maybe this isn't the best place for it, but this is where I've chosen to kind of put it in because it's, it's right after what we were just looking at. So in Genesis 2 verse 10, we find out that a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And from there it was separated into four headwaters. Now, we, we don't usually kind of read too much about this, talk too much about this, um, this, this water that's, that's flowing and everything. But now this passage right here, because you have this water that is flowing and, and how it separates, you know, and, and everything about the structure of it, it kind of implies, just go with me if you will for a little bit, it implies that this garden and Eden itself is kind of up on a mountaintop. Now to us, that probably doesn't mean a whole, whole lot, except we find it showing up several times in the scriptures. We find out that people go up on high places or mountaintops in order to worship God. See, mountains to the ancient people, they were places of worship. You know, and sometimes they would even kind of make their own type of mountains. Uh, that's why we have structures like the pyramids. Uh, that's a man-made mountain, if you will. We also have the ziggurats and, and other types of, of pyramid-like structures or uh, structures that are like a mountaintop. That's because those are sort of how they were trying to connect to God. See, you know, to us, sometimes people climb mountains for fun. But really in the ancient world, nobody really climbed mountains for fun. You only climb mountains in order to be closer to God. You know, for many people, even today, they might think, well, it wouldn't be fun for me to climb a mountain anyways. Well, that's how a lot of the ancient people thought of, you know, because it's just, it's a harsh environment. You don't go there to to live and to remain there you know it's it's kind of hard it's the the climate is harsher um just everything about mountains can be quite a bit harsher than just the the plains and the other areas around so what i want you to just kind of take notice of right here is just notice mountain language as we continue throughout today and, and in the upcoming weeks i just want you to notice how it goes back to this eden because you know we can easily think okay well where was that mountain well the mountain kind of comes to this. It's sort of implied in the story, and it's really picked up throughout the Bible. So we, we find out this concept about going to the mountain and being connected with our God. There's still more to this story, though, and we still don't even need to, to leave the book of Genesis just yet. A few verses later in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, 
uh, all the way down to verse 17 now. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, you know the rest of the story. You know that what they did is they did not choose to cling to that life. They didn't choose the way of life. They chose the way of that other tree, that, that other one that was in the middle of the garden. And one thing that we see about this, this land of Eden, this garden of Eden, is we see that at the middle of it, there is this life, but there is all the, also this serious decision that we must make. If we approach the middle, and if we approach you know, trying to get closer to God and, and everything in the wrong ways, then that can actually lead to death. God gave them that warning, hey, this is serious stuff. They didn't heed that warning. In fact, they completely ignored that warning, and they ate from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. So in Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24, this is what we read. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. You notice what happens here. I mean, everything is just going bad. They have been banished from this Garden of Eden. They've been banished from the whole area. There's no way to be able to get back to that life. And that life, of course, it wasn't so much about that tree of life. That tree of life was, it was just, just kind of a representation of that life that God himself gives, that, that you know, eternal life. And they find themselves separated from it right here. It really, as you're, you're reading the story, you get three chapters in to the Bible. And already it seems like everything is just a total loss. But you probably know the rest of the story. You know that many, many, many years later, Jesus Christ is going to step into history. And whenever he steps into history, it seems like things are going so great. But then as you get to the end of the Gospels, then you also find out that even he was rejected. So then you wonder, what really is going on? Among this rejection and among all of it seeming like everything is just a total loss, when we look at Jesus Christ as he was hanging on the cross, I want you to pay attention to one of the things that he says right there. In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Now this is Jesus speaking to the thief on the cross, not the one who was mocking him, but the one who said, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, they're both there. Jesus is about to die. I mean, that's what everything seems to be pointing to. This thief, he knows he's about to die, but he still says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this is Jesus's answer. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this word paradise, you know, of course, is, as we read it in our, in our English Bibles, it doesn't seem like it's connected to the Garden of Eden. But I will remind you that as you look in, in Greek, which the New Testament, it was written in Greek. And the translation of the Old Testament into Greek was, was very well known during the days of Jesus. So as they would read the scriptures and read those passages about the Garden of Eden, they would read about this paradise of Eden. You know, they would read about this garden, this paradise that is there. So when Jesus says on the cross, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's an amazing passage um, of hope. 
that we see that, that paradise is not utterly lost. We see that paradise is still something that people can obtain, but they can only get that through Jesus Christ, of course. That's why he's saying, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this is what Jesus said on the cross. But if you follow the story, you find out that even after Jesus's death, we find out that a garden is there. Now, let's switch gospels over to John, uh, John's gospel now. In John chapter 14, verses 41, just verse 41, we read this. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. As you keep reading, you find out that's where they place Jesus. They place Jesus in this new tomb that is in this garden. Now, this garden is connected, of course, to the Garden of Eden. We see that, that both of these are kind of famous gardens that, that have to do with, well, the original life at the very beginning. But now this one has to do with this new life, this new life that can come through Jesus Christ. And as you keep reading in John's Gospel or any of the others, you will find that we know that the, the final chapter of, of these Gospels, Jesus rose up from that tomb. He didn't stay there. He rose up from the grave. Whenever he rose up out of that tomb that was in the garden, all of it screams that there is new life. That's why we can turn to the last book of the Bible and we read language like this. Notice this connection of life and the garden, this paradise, and also we see a connection to Eden itself, to the delight of God. Notice how Revelation, uh, how we read about these things in Revelation. Now, this is actually Jesus um, speaking, and, and he speaks to these different churches. And among the words that he says to the different churches, in Revelation 2, 7, Jesus says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Notice this language here. Paradise of God, tree of life. Is it a coincidence? I don't think so. I don't think it's a coincidence at all that what we find out with, with John the Revelator here, he's recording these words of Jesus. And Jesus is still talking about this tree of life. He's talking about this paradise of God. He's talking about what God did at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Now, you might be thinking at this point, are we looking at a temple? Are we talking about a temple? Keep in mind, a temple doesn't have so much to do with the building. The temple has everything to do with us encountering God and being there with God. And it can all happen through Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't the only passage in Revelation that talks about these things right here all coming together in one. In Revelation chapter 21, this is really at the end of the book. We find out that, that of course, we're skipping a lot of history to get to this point. But at the end of the book, we find out kind of the, the last few chapters of, of, uh, of this story that God is telling us. In Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Do you notice this wonderful statement of hope? This wonderful words of hope that we can cling to. That God's dwelling place is now among the people. You know what that means? That means there's really no need for a temple at this point. 
You know, the original temple didn't have anything to do with the building. It had everything to do with being right there in the midst of God. And at the end of the Bible, we see that God's dwelling place is right there among his people. There still is no need for a temple. It's right there with the people. Like He is right there with the people, among the people, and he is going to dwell with them. But that's not the only images that we see in Revelation that uh, that kind of mimic and, and sort of even expand upon what we saw in Genesis. In Revelation chapter 21, a few verses later, verses 22 through 24, John says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. You notice that whenever God is making all things new in the future, there is no need for a temple in this new Jerusalem, in this new city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. That is so significant. That's what we get at as to what a temple is all about, really, is getting there right there with God, being there. And we see that this new city, this new Jerusalem, in this new place, in the new heavens, the new earth, all of this is wrapped up and it's gonna, we're, we're going to be right there with God. This is wonderful news for us today. We also find out in the very last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is this wonderful image that we see at the end of the Bible. This is at the end of the story of God. We see this river of life. We see this tree of life. We see there's no longer any curse. All of these bad things that have happened throughout this story of God have all been done away with. They've all been done away with because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and as he continued to serve his heavenly father and teach us how to serve our heavenly father as well. So what we see in the beginning and also at the end of the story is we start off with this land of Eden that has a garden within it. And in the middle of that garden, there is life. There is this tree of life, this choice to choose life. And at the end of the story, what we find out is that God is, is wanting us to delight in him and with him. That we can have this hope of paradise being right there in the midst of God. And we have this choice. Let's make sure that we choose life. We've been given the same choice and now really what we find out at the end of the Bible is, is that everything is even better than what it was at the beginning of the Bible. But I also want to tell you this. See, in, in the following weeks... What we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at some of the in-between times. Because, see, right here, this is the beginning of the story, and this is the end of the story. And it's a great story. But, you know, we skipped over almost everything that happens in the in-between times. That's thousands of years of history. That's life right here, right now. So what does a temple have to do with during that time? Well, if you keep coming back, we will, we will keep looking at these things. And we will see that, that a temple, it has to do with us being with God. 
But you know that changed after they were kicked, after mankind was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. The way that they approached God and interacted with God, it was going to forever change. And the way that we interact with God, it's different than how it was in times past. We're going to be looking at those things in the upcoming weeks, and I hope that you will join us. More importantly than that, I hope that we can encourage one another to be people who are going to choose this life and people who are going to serve our Heavenly Father. God, can you hear? Can you hear? Can you hear me? God, can you hear me now? God, can you hear? Can you hear? Can you hear me? I cry to you with all my power. Through the veil of Jesus' flesh, from this valley strewn with tears, I can climb up to the mountain of the Father. For it is to hear the pleas from His children worn and weak, as they come into His presence with their I can come into his presence with my prayer.